Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? Today, we're joined by two special guests, both of whom you've heard before. The first being everyone's favorite sound guy, Mr. Pat McCaffrey. What's up, Pat? What up? (laughs) And here to keep his son in line is none other than the notorious Mr. Gene McCaffrey himself. Welcome back to the infamous. Thank you for having me. We are, of course, continuing our read with Stephen R. Donaldson's sci-fi epic, The Gap Cycle, with The Gap Into Power, A Dark and Hungry God Arises. We have an absolute ton to cover for today, so let's get this show on the road. Drew, blast us off with our weekly recap. I think Heath Ledger, as the Joker, had it right when he was inadvertently describing the first half of this book. And oh. here we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All right. This okay. book kicks off with the arrival of Davies Highland on Billingate, captured by the Bill himself, as well as his, uh, hmm, shall we say, right-hand woman, Soros Chatelaine, the very woman who carved those scars into Nick Sicorso's face. Nick desperate to save himself and his ship is trying everything he can to get Davies back, but he has very little to bargain with and the Amnion are insistent. So Nick in his desperation sells Morn to the Amnion. Meanwhile, back on UMC, uh, the UMCP HQ station over earth, Mm. Warden Dios is playing the political game. He fields a press conference from the governing council of earth and space reveals the fact that the UMCP sold Morn to an illegal to Nick Sicorso to further their goals. Uh, he, he basically opens up all of the doings of the police to, uh, to, to the people who will be most outraged by it. And the whole time standing by is Holt Fastner, the dragon, the CEO of the United Mining Corporations, the, uh, the guy, the ruler, the, the effective ruler of humanity at this point. And he is very, very upset. But Warden has plans. And one of his plans is to send his executioner, Min Donner, down to Earth to introduce a bill of severance through the hands of Sixten Verticus, the famed space captain who was the first human to encounter the Amnion. But as she is meeting with him and discussing it, a Kazi, a suicide bomber, shows up in his antechamber to try to kill him. Min and Sixten survive, but things are, uh, are are pretty chaotic after that. And that's not all, because at the beginning of this book, Angus Thermopylae, Joshua, the welded cyborg, is sent out from Earth in the company of Milo's Taverner to return to Forbidden Space and carry out a campaign against the illegals 
as many in UMC PHQ think, just to destroy Thanatos Minor, but as only Ward knows, also to rescue Morn Highland. Oh boy. <laughs> oh, boy. oh boy. Where do where do we leave off with Angus? As far uh, the, as we've gotten. The last scene with Angus in Forbidden Knowledge was the uh, we have committed a crime against your soul no, and I mean, it's got to stop. I mean, uh, as far as what we're covering for this episode, what was oh, the last? Oh, uh, for this episode, the last it thing was... Uh, the was... conversation with Nick, right? When yes. He was, yeah, the conversation okay. with Nick and the agreement to... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the fecal matter is on a collision course with the oscillating turbine device, but it exactly. has not quite struck <laughs> yet. Right, right. There are fans <laughs> about to be hit. Exactly. Oh, oh thank you, Pat. So, I You're mean, welcome. <laughs> this is getting dark. I mean, I expected it. You guys have, have prepared me for it, but I still have to say, wow. Be- between what's going on with Milos abusing Angus and Nick being... Nick Sikorso. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not to mention the brief point of view, or was it? I think we only had the one point of view from Morn, right? As she has the uh, the thing in her arm and she's starting yes. to fight yeah. off the mutagens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing's really good happening for anybody right now, but especially that Milos and Angus business. I mean, with yeah. the cigarettes and or the mix, whatever they're called, and other things happening, just some twisted stuff. And I, I am glad that we waited 120 episodes of the Inking Out Loud podcast before. <laughs> getting into this kind of stuff. Like, I don't know how I would have fared heading into this without having first been primed by uh, the Axe of Cain and then get, being allowed sufficient time to heal and develop calluses <laughs> after that one. Just, uh, it's, it's heavy stuff. Yeah. How, how, are you, how are you guys finding it? No, I think this is probably the darkest book as far as subject matter that we get. Oh, and obviously the Norna Fasner and Holt Fasner situation is also not it's far from pleasant yeah yeah i don't know i i will say i don't think any book in this series gets as dark as blade of taishal but as a whole this series is darker than the axe of cain i think i agree with that so far i mean obviously yeah I, yeah there's a higher peak so to speak. Yeah, like, like there's as as horrific as some of the physical violence, you know, uh, as Milo's Taverner repeatedly putting out cigarettes on uh, Angus's tongue, and 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 uh, scenes in the the bar on Billingate of this woman with cybernetic implants carving off her breasts and and slicing open her stomach and basically killing herself on stage I still don't think that's as horrific as some of the stuff in chapter 11 of Blade of Taishal uh, yeah. yeah but it's not <laughs> no no it, it, but <laughs> But that moment in Blade of Tashel is a moment. And what this is in the first half of A Dark and Hungry God Arises is a continuation on a theme that will 
carry through the entire series of the gap cycle. And even though I have said in the past, I'm not a huge fan of like, you know, uh, graphic violence for the sake of shock and awe and, and disgust. I don't think this graphic violence is here for the sake of those things. It's here for the sake of genuine character development. It is um, pushing the characters to their moral and and uh, physical event horizons. It's it's Stephen R. Donaldson taking that old author's maxim of think of the worst thing you can do to your characters and do it. Um, I I agree and he's with doing you it. with with two with two caveats. Oh, the first okay. would be the scene in the bar that was described. That uh, was, yes, that was gratuitous, and it's more to shock us and to give us a a sense of what Billingate is like. Right, it's a setting piece. I, think. I mean, so it's not only to shock, but what do you what do you think he's saying about the human race? That this is what has happened, and mm-hmm. such extreme forms of sadism and masochism seem to be. Uh, if not accepted, certainly. Uh, what's he saying here? I, I, yeah, okay. I'm really glad you brought this up because this scene to me uh, reflects the same ideas, the same thematic ideas as Heroes Die by Matthew Stover, where it's it's this discussion of, in different ways, uh, the depraved depths humanity will go to for entertainment in heroes die it's it's the idea of um vicarious living into the bodies of brutal assassinations and and violence and rape and and all of this stuff and in and in this sense it's not vicarious it's it's uh uh, it's still a presentation. It's a presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it like, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't bring bring the uh, the audience to such a personal level of like oh uh, you know as in in the acts of Cain where people on Earth are literally feeling and experiencing and and ex- you know seeing through the eyes of these actors who are assassinating people and and committing atrocities but rather they're they're literally people sitting in a bar watching and paying for something horrific yeah and as he describes the reactions of the patrons in this particular scene some of them are way into it and but mostly a lot of people are indifferent and and what what makes this scene something more than just shock value for me is the fact that Milo's Taverner is a key character in it. This is a guy who has been presented to us as a fastidious, uh, a, a, a nitpicky person who is repulsed by anything unclean, and here he is in a position where he has been stripped of his agency because. He is nominally Angus's second, 
And in, in typical Donaldson fashion, of course, there are so many layers to the scene where he's Angus II, but really he's in charge of Angus, but he can't he can't reveal that he's in charge of Angus without betraying his own agency. And so he's stuck in this and has to watch, has to experience the brutality on the stage. And that is Angus's revenge upon Milos because Angus Mm. knew what was going to happen. Angus has seen this before. Angus tells us in the scene, he has seen this stuff before. He knows what's going to happen. And he wants to experience Milos's revulsion. It's so much yeah. more than just shock value. It's it's giving us new depths to the interactions between the characters. It's horrific. It's it's terrible. But my goodness, but is it deep. good writing. It's deep. There's substance <laughs> to it. It's not uh, um, superficial stuff just meant to shock you. There is a point. Mm-hmm. There is a reason to it. There is a a, a pattern to the madness. I, I see that. It's disturbing, but it's it's definitely... I see value in it, as hard as it is to say that. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. well why, why do you think that Donaldson is saying humanity would get to this point? What do you think his reasons are? Yeah, I would have my own explanations, but what do you think he's trying to? <laughs> well, well to Pat, series, maybe. Pat, we, we just had a conversation yesterday morning about the idea of zone implants being a real thing. Yeah. How how there are now actual implanted electrodes that that uh, humanity uses to help people alleviate yeah. their symptoms of neurological disorders like Parkinson's and whatnot, and and you noted, you know, that's how it starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean that's true. I mean, so can we can we draw the conclusion from this that it's simply a matter of opportunity and an, a matter of means? At least in Donaldson's world here. Yeah. 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 And and can we, I mean, do we think, do we buy that? Yes. I'm sorry, but I do. I mean, I, I do buy that. <laughs> as, as depressing as it is to talk about it, I, 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 I have think... seen no evidence in the progression of humanity, especially over the last, I don't know, 20 years, as I have grown into adulthood, uh, I have seen no evidence that humanity will not take advancements in technology and turn them into perversions. Yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> the question is benefits versus cons, right? Pros versus cons. With, as with any increasing bit of technology. Yeah, I mean, the tools that we have don't change us. They just change what we can do to each other. Exactly. Like, yeah. what, Holt, like what Holt can do to Norna and uh. what Milos can do to Angus. And what kind and of what expressions. can do to Morn. Yeah. And what the the owners of that bar can do to that poor woman. And, yeah. and so here, here is where uh, Eking Out Loud goes from style to uh, moralizing. And, <laughs> okay. and thus, I'm going to sit here, and since I have a stack of Jello shots, I am going to consume one of these because I need more alcohol to, to discuss this book. Yeah. <laughs> well, Drew... While Drew continues to imbibe his nineteen-year-old girl, <laughs> is it Chandler's um, <laughs> jello shot? I, I will just point out that, like, I almost feel like I have to moralize 
to sort of take the, it's like taking a bath. I'm trying to take a bath with the moralizing to like get the, you know, get the filth of, of what we experience off. Yeah. I mean, if you guys will permit me to change the subject, I can definitely do that. <laughs> you well, well, no, out. no, I, I actually, I don't want but, you to change the subject. Uh, first, I want to hear from Gene on this mm-hmm. uh, because you've read this series as far as I know, more times than anybody else here. You read it before anybody else. You have more of a, a grounding in this series and, and a perspective on it untinged by more modern fantasy and science fiction. And so, I mean, you mentioned, I, I, if I remember right, in, uh, in the first Forbidden Knowledge episode, that you were reading the series before it was even finished. Right. That's right. I, I waited for the last, for books four and five to come out. Yeah. And so you got to experience, <laughs> I say got to, <laughs> you had to experience this series uh, in in a, a more progressive state than we did. Mm. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, especially the beginning of this book, because in my mind, having read the whole series, the first half of A Dark and Hungry God Arises is the fulcrum of the series. In theme, in plot, in character, in everything. This is where everything changes. Well, it's when the roller coaster really starts. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I actually, as I said, I read the first three books. Mm-hmm. They were out at that time. And when I finished the third book, I was like, wow. <laughs> I can't wait to find out what happens now. <laughs> yeah. um, but it does, as you say, it opens up the political aspect of it. It gives us a look at, at Holt and what we're, what he's dealing with, what we are dealing with with him, um, the political stuff. Um, the degradation um, yeah. and people are switching roles here. Yes. Um, Angus is the rescuer um, as opposed to the dragon. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a, a big thing here. You know, you, you go back to the hero, villain, damsel triad that was initially established as Nick as the hero, Angus as the villain, Morn as the damsel, and they rotated in the last book to where Angus was the damsel, uh, Nick was the villain, and Morn was the hero. And now we have started turning where Nick is stripped of so much of his agency he is beset upon all sides. He He's becoming more of the damsel figure. And Angus is becoming more of a hero figure. He's the one who's been welded to become a Superman. And, and he's here to, as far as we know, 
at this point in the, in the story to rescue Morn. And, and yet we have this hanging moment with Morn. Where does she belong in this triad? You know? Yeah, well, I think she's back to being the, the damsel. Um, Nick and, mm-hmm. and Angus have switched roles. Because um, yeah. by now, by now, we we all are rooting against Nick. Yes. And if we're not rooting for Angus, we're at least interested in what's going to happen. To him. <laughs> yeah. Where's he going to go with it? And he actually has done... Uh, he has performed an heroic act, even though it really has nothing to do with him. It's mm-hmm. not of his volition. He's he's, uh, but he's getting a view of the other side um, because his life so far has been nothing but corruption, brutality, and violence. Yeah, and he does not believe that there is such a thing as nobility. And he's just done something noble, right? Yeah. So, and we're, 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 I was even then I was kind of expecting that to have repercussions down the road. He has now been introduced to nobility. He has performed a noble act, even though it really was not of his own volition. He still has to. The implications of it still uh, manifest themselves in him. So you think these three roles have become muddled, basically, where where you can't clearly well, ascribe. Yeah. 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 Things are in moving. And I don't know if it's mm-hmm. in this book that Hashi opines on Heisenberg's uh, uncertainty principle. Uncertainty principle. It, and, it, is, uh, it is not in the first half of this book, I'll say that. Okay, okay. So it's, so it's coming. <laughs> but that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Like Donaldson I, is is doing this really clever thing there, where he tells us how he's writing the hang on, the series. I see Rob's face. Principle. Yeah, yeah. I see Rob's face. <laughs> I'm really excited that's going now. to play. That's going so, to play a significant role. I'm so glad that you guys bring this up right now because literally my next style point is tech. Rob loves tech. Rob loves science. That was literally <laughs> my next point. I was going to say. I love that Donaldson clearly has a grasp, a better grasp of science, I should say, particularly with, with chemistry and biology than, than most of these lame Hollywood writers nowadays, for example, who are trying yeah. to explain things off with quantum drives, quantum communications, quantum everything. Like, yeah, if, if, if people, and even scientists say this when they have no idea what they're talking about. They just say it's it's quantum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Right. It, yeah. It's quantum. Donaldson's giving <laughs> us a lot of hard science and tech, but he's never going too much into detail, which is something I admire. Like, I, I particularly enjoyed the line in uh, our opening of, of, of Holt Fastener there, where we had this line that said, the value of Holt Fastener's time couldn't be measured in pure cesium. Brilliant. I yeah. love that line. I love that line. And yeah, listening I, to you, like, sorry, go ahead. There are so many layers to that line. Like, it, you know, yes. it's, it's a riff on, uh, you know, something we're familiar with, right? You know, your, your time, you're, you're Jeff Bezos, you're Bill Gates, your time can't be measured in dollars. You know, uh, the value of your time is is so beyond normal concepts. But he takes it to another level, making it something science fictional, this rare element. But on top of that, 
It's cesium that he uses, which is an unstable element, which in and of itself has a half-life. Yeah, it's fluid. Like, it's, an, it's an alkali metal, and it's fluid. It's super reactive. Yeah, and it, like... Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it brings it like layers of scientific knowledge where you can read it as just like, you know, if, if you're not into, uh, if, if you're not a, a chemistry enthusiast or whatever, you can be like, oh, cesium. Yeah, that, you know, that sounds like a, a, a crazy science yeah. thing. You know, like, <laughs> that's, that's a made up word. Yeah. Well, well, no, not, not that it's made up, but, but it's like, oh, that's something that I don't understand, but I can recognize that's this crazy element. Um, it's something on the periodic table that's rare and, and, and it, because of the context in that sentence, it tells me this, this element is orders of magnitude more valuable than a dollar. Because mm -hmm. I'm familiar with the statement, it's, you know, it can't be measured in dollars. Well, this can't be measured in cesium, you know? And, but then if you know what cesium is, if you're familiar with how this element uh, reacts in the experience of humanity, you realize like it's beyond that because cesium is something that's uh, uh, bounded by time. It's an unstable element it literally will not stay cesium. Well, yeah, there's also the fact that, I mean, like, <laughs> run our atomic clocks with cesium. The, the definition of the scientific second is based on the number of vibrations of the cesium atom. Yes. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. it's just so, <laughs> it's so, mm, it's such a good line. And, and yeah. there's, there's some for, something for everybody. I just, mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. I love the science. I love the tech. I will, I love this and I want more of it. And you guys just made this reference to the Heisenberg uncertainty principles. And so I am <laughs> choked to go forward. Yeah. 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 Like you read that, Hosh, he's going to be your favorite character too. Uh -huh. Ooh, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but uh, a few more style things I wanted to point out. Uh, we have another change in chapter layout in this, right? Book, there are no numbered chapters. Last book, we had chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, etc., and then occasional chapters just titled Milos or Angus. Now, everything is character names. This is a straight up, uh, you know, it's Davies or it's more. Unless you're yeah, on the ebook, yeah. I'll say unless you're on the ebook. The ebook has them all numbered as well as the. Well, but yeah, the characters, yeah, but, but yeah, but I see, the I know actual mean, yeah. names of the chapters are not chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. It's Morn, Davies, Milos, Angus. And for, for, uh, fans of a song of ice and fire, you'll recognize this is what George R. R. Martin, you know, did with, with his series, his chapters are named after the characters whose points of view those chapters are in. I think it's necessary that he do it this way and good um, because the story is getting more complicated as more of the political elements and the, and the whole Fasner elements. So it has to be done. And there's a lot of information and there's a lot of characters and they're all important. And so their point of view has to be 
expressed, and this is the structural way that he does it, and it's really good. Yeah, so it's I I love I love how the first book has this omniscient point of view. The whole thing is from an omniscient narrator, whoever is explaining, telling the story can see into the heads of whomever they want to see into. Our chapters are numbered. They're, you know, they're, they're just utilitarian in terms of telling the story. And then Forbidden Knowledge, our second book, is a blend of this. The chapters are numbered, and mostly we have a narrator looking into Morn's head. But when we look outside of Morn's head, we have Angus, Mylos, as the headers for those chapters, indicating, all right, we're not an omniscient narrator anymore. We're a, a, a third-person limited narrator, and we're transitioning from that original narrator in the real story, most of which is still in this, right? But when we move to Milos or Angus, here are their chapters. And now in this book, we have completely transitioned into that where every chapter is a limited third person narrator. And I am telling you, this is the person whose head we're in. Okay. Uh, I have a follow-up though question then because in chapter five this is this was one of my miscellaneous points but this is the perfect time to bring this up i mm-hmm. say i call it chapter five davies i should say um there was a line that said and i quote if he had known his father he might have recognized angus thermopylae's instinctive reaction to futility and fear but he doesn't know his father who's writing that this is a limited third person right is it that's what you just finished talking about. I assume I wasn't, uh, you know. So this okay. is Stephen R. Donaldson for you. This is a guy who is going to play fast and loose with point of view, but he's going to give you signifiers to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you uh, like signposts. I'm, I'm going to give you markers so you can understand how this chapter is going to work. But because he's Stephen R. Donaldson and because he has always done this, if he needs to pull out, he needs to pull out of that point of view. And he's going to give you the necessary context. No, and it works really well in, in my opinion. It's it's okay. And on I a mean, meta level, that's what the ancillary documentation is. He's going from, uh, you know, putting us in the heads of the characters to, I'm just going to give you a history lesson for a little bit. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we start to notice at this point that there's a coherency to the ancillary documentations. They're not randomly placed. Um, either you know, they, they have relevance directly to the story and they're sort of telling their own story as it goes along Why? because they rely on information you glean from past ancillary documentations to get the full context of what's going on in this one. Hmm. I love that you guys keep bringing up my next style points for me. I don't even have to do <laughs> this. is amazing. This is probably going to be my hottest take today. Something, something great minds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
I'm about done with this, these ancillary documentation pieces now. I loved them in the last. I loved them in the last book. And the real story didn't have any, right? I'm remembering no, that correctly. None. No. Okay. The subject matter is just my issue. It's just a personal interest thing, I swear. It, but in Forbidden Knowledge, we were learning about the invention of the gap drive and the first contact scenarios with the Amnion, Amnioni, Amnion, Amnioni, whatever one it is. Um, compared to like the absolute sci-fi fireworks, sci-fireworks, sci I'm going to make that a word now. We have like eight or nine pages on the forming of the United Mining Company. No, we had we had two of those, didn't we? We had two ancillary yes. documentations on Two the, of them. Mm -hmm. United Mining Company. And then we had another one on the formation of the govern governing council of, for Earth and Space. I mean, uh -huh. objectively speaking, none of that's interesting. As, as interesting as the gap drive or the alien threat. I suppose it depends on who you are, but I still... I'm dangerously close to treating this as they're actually named ancillary. If I head into the next one and I see another lengthy explanation and what I think is a necessary explanation of delicate politics and various parties trying to outmaneuver one another, I just may start skipping these. Oh, I don't dude. like them. <laughs> See, I liked I liked all the three of the ones that you mentioned. That this, this, that's my hot take for today. That's probably well, don't worry. Don't worry. It doesn't get any more boring than it has. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that the, the the UMC stuff was necessary because he sets it. He does set up Hope Fasner as a as a believable character. It's so easy to make a guy like that or just a sort of caricature of, uh, you know, evil personified. And it's, you know, the, the J.R. Ewing, Donald Trump, you know, ruler of the world. And, uh, you have to set up a guy who's that evil and that ruthless as being, as having a history. You have to make it believable. Okay. I was going to save this for character points, but I'll just put it in here. Holt Fastner is a space opera um, version of Jeff Bezos, honestly. Before Jeff Bezos before was Jeff, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> way before, yeah. I mean, yeah, Amazon yeah. Well, did not I think Amazon yeah, it, didn't exist, but it was... Uh, it did not, but, but it, reading this book in 2021... It is so easy to read those ancillary documentation chapters and see Jeff Bezos. The way he has manipulated the market, the way he has manipulated business, uh, ancillary businesses outside of his initial, you know, kind of core, uh, and and grown him, uh, grown his influence. It's like, my goodness. Everything and Jeff you know, Bezos has done is exactly what Holt Fastner did in this, yeah. in this series. And, and can I just can can we yeah, all? I just, think it's easier for you guys because you're younger and that you've seen this sort of thing <laughs> happen before. When I read it, it, it needed to be demonstrated that so you wouldn't say to yourself, "How did this guy ever get where he got?" Because he's just pure evil, and there's much more to it than that. Yes. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying Jeff Bezos is pure evil, but, no, but no, no, he no, has no, definitely no. done these right. things. And and I think, ultimately, this is a testament to the to the foresight of Stephen R. Donaldson. Yes, that that's he, right. He predicted this. 
I mean, he saw this coming. There were uh, similarly Orson Scott Card in some of the uh, Ender Shadow, the Shadow Quartet, some of the political maneuvers he foresaw uh, in the geopolitical landscape. Similarly, Matthew Stover with some of the corporate maneuvers that would happen in in the future of humanity in, in the acts of Cain, you know, uh, uh, William Gibson, some of the things he predicted with the development of technology in cyberspace, like, look, some of the smartest people of the last 50 years, I'm sorry, were science fiction writers. Like they saw this yeah. shit coming. <laughs> yeah. And can we just, can we all just take a moment and thank Stephen R. Donaldson for not making the the arch villain Hitler. Well, like yeah. it's so yeah. easy to just make your villains Hitler, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're just well, I was just saying that, that, that in a sense, he is like that Hitler and Lenin before because Hitler learned from Lenin. Um, Stalin, I'd say more Lenin. Both of them, more Lenin. Um, the, the pursuit of power, that the single-minded pursuit of power is a thing that people do, in fact, do. Um, and it's just getting a little more sophisticated. But see, what I, yeah, I, it's the sophistication that I like. It's not a guy leading a bunch of, you know, he's not leading armies into war. He's not having, well, he is having secret police kick down people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but how? But, no, but that's not emphasized. It's not the point. It's not mm-hmm. from his point of view, right? Unlike the political guys who want people to adore them, he doesn't really care whether people yeah. adore him or not. He yes, cares that he gets his own way. Mm-hmm. It's like a, the maximum level of pride that you could ever possibly attain. Yeah, because everything Holt Fastener does. I mean, are we just are we just going to transition from style to characters and stuff? I think yeah. Nick Corso's ego is a little bigger than Holt Fastener's. No, no, it is not. No, no, it is not. <laughs> no, it is not. Okay, all right. Because Holt, yeah, I'm, Holt I'm Fastener is the single most egotistic character I have ever encountered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but just just take this one example, Rob. Nick. <laughs> even though his motivations are twisted, he actually cares what other people think about him. Mm-hmm. And right. if it involves other people, you're not on Holtfastner's level because the only person that Holtfastner cares about is himself. Yes. He could not exactly. give a rat's ass about anybody's <laughs> opinion about anything. Holtfastner is the only entity that matters like there there are moments in his point of view at the beginning of this book where it becomes clear that he views himself above humanity yeah he does not see himself as a human person anymore he is better he is greater he is more important than all the billions of humans who exist everything that the UMC is doing, everything that the UMCP is doing, it is all geared toward the aggrandizement of Holt Fastener. Hmm. I suppose I was just talking about how Nick needs everyone to be in love with him at, at all times. If you, yeah, I, I need to, I need to read more now on the dragon no, and to I, really, and really appreciate wanna, the scope. I mean, I don't want to diminish what you're saying about Nick at all. Yeah, yeah entirely, Nick is awful. <laughs> it's entirely accurate. Oh, sure. 
Yeah. And but this flaw is driving Nick, and it's driving him further and further and into more extremity yeah. um, to the point of obsession. And when you compare him to Holt Fasner, is, is Nick not <laughs> unmistakably a small person? Yes! Oh, sure. Yes! Sure. I mean, we talked about this yeah, in, the, in Forbidden that. Knowledge. Nick is a child. He is. He's, a, yeah. he's an ape. He's, he's, he's not even human. Like, the most the most important thing for Nick is the the words I want. He is a child. He's a toddler yeah. who has mm-hmm. gained power over people and gained the ability to turn his uh, prepubescent desires into the reality for his ship. He is somebody who does not understand how to act as an adult in human society. He is a toddler with power. Oh, I just... I think that that's exactly what Donaldson is saying with the, when stores cut him. That that, in effect, cut him off from adulthood. Yeah. Frozen yeah, I... right where he was in adolescent obsession. And, uh, you know, adolescents are like that. You know what he is in archetypal terms? I just realized he's he's Peter Pan. If if <laughs> where's he going if, with this? If Tinkerbell had helped him supplant Captain Hook and then betrayed him, and then just left him in Neverland to to explore his own thing forever and ever and ever. Oh, I like it. I like it. That's right? a I mean, great. It, that's a it great fits. literary illusion. It fits. <laughs> Okay. Hey, we oh. just get into characters. Let's do it. I mean, we are. We are. Sorry. Yeah, no, we're, we're on Nick, right? We don't. I don't. I mean, do we need to say anything more about Nick? I want to watch him crumble and burn. That's what I want to say. <laughs> don't I deserve something? You know? It, yes, you do. <laughs> and the guy is 100% despicable. There's no one worse. I mean, even with Milos <laughs> and Angus, their crimes are worse. But they're doing it out of what seems to be fear and insecurity vulnerability you know okay, I'm, I'm sorry did you just say angus and milos's crimes are worse yes i think well, what not, am i nick just sold more into the amnion okay and we're gonna get into that too <laughs> we're gonna get it's okay yeah but I, I just mean like the the debasing human humiliation and sadistic nature of enjoying someone else's pain and anguish i think that like more into anger to Nick is somebody he just wants to get rid of at this point. It, like, I mean, he wants As to he said, Does he, does he just want to get rid of her mm. or does he want her to suffer? What it is through... with Nick is, is the entitlement that drips off of every page that his name is on. The completely distorted view of the universe that he has, which clearly revolves around him and everything he wants. But lately, it's just like this desiring feminine pain or however he phrases it. Yeah, it's starting. It's. Ah, I wish nothing but the absolute worst on Nick Sicorso. Uh, and what I want to see is to see him spaced and have an entire ship of people in the windows flipping him off as he floats. <laughs> That's what I want to see. And yes, I still so- want to fight him, too. So, Gene, uh, a few months ago, we did our 100th episode celebration. <laughs> and and part of that was uh, 
uh, several Rob, Pat, and and Jared and I uh, revealed our least favorite characters in all of science fiction and fantasy. And Pat and I had Nick Sicorso as our number one least favorite character, most hated. Uh, how do you feel about Nick Sicorso? Oh, yeah, he's pretty despicable. Um <laughs> I'm trying to think of the worst, most hated character. <laughs> it's you hard. Isn't it? I mean, there's there's so many contenders. <laughs> I, I mean, you could, you could go with Savannah. I wouldn't complain. Well, I, I, I think, <laughs> in a way, Milos is more contemptible than Nick. Ooh. Um, See, yeah, I think maybe. Yeah, well, contemptible is a good word for Milos because Nick is someone you at least have to take seriously. Are you sure? I feel like Nick is pretty contemptible sure. because he oh, has yeah, this yeah, like yeah. toddler esque approach to life. Uh, it's easy to be condescending to Nick. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd agree with toddler because it it it, ha, it has at least reached the stage of puberty. Mm, I don't know mm, mm. the want. Thing. I mean, I, I mean, well, he has sexual desires, so that's fair. Okay, yeah, and they're they're intertwined with his yeah yeah his uh, under uh, underpinning motivations. But I don't think sure. he's a very complex character. No. I mean, everything, no. he, he's a reactor, um, an actor and a reactor. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the whole thing with Selling Mourn is, well, she betrayed him, so he's going to betray her ultimately. He's going to betray her humanity because she's not going to be she's not gonna be human after the admin get a hold of her. Anything you can do, I can do better? Okay. That's right. The word I would yeah. use... To describe Nick's selling of more into the Amnion is petulant. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a petulant move. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I mean, he is betraying our humanity. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he but doesn't I mean, know that she has stolen his immunity drug. You know, yeah. he doesn't know, and 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 of course, that doesn't. Last. Because as yeah, always, yeah, yeah. as always, Morn is on another level than Nick. Yeah, but but like, he, when he, Nick he is the taking her the drug, it, exactly. Yeah, to the Amnion. Yeah, and yeah. and she just blows him away again. Yes. Oh, with her, how good? With how reaction. good was that scene in in the corridor approaching the? You know, uh, approaching the gateway to the Amnion sector, and and Morn has, in in her own way, pure control over Nick. What's her What's her oh by the way moment? What does she tell him? Oh 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 that that she knows that he wasn't uh, like she knows that he had already had conversations with Hashi. Because he was connecting with the 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 way station, she was yeah. like, "You would not have been able to connect with him." I know you've already been working with UMCP data acquisition. Like you're not fooling me. You're not fooling anybody. There's like, that, but I remember yeah. now. The moment I was thinking of is when she tells him that the Amnion know his priority codes. 
she just tells him that. Oh, yeah, yes. He's just, yeah. I mean, yeah. that that is such a brilliant move. Yeah. Because it undermines everything that Nick is doing to her. Yeah, because Nick's foundation as, uh, like, this personality, no, not even, well, I, I, I should say, as a personality, because Nick Sicorso is a personality. That's not his real identity. He is not Nick Sicorso. We don't know what his yeah. real name was. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Nick Sicorso is a name he created for himself, a persona, an identity he has crafted and elevated. He is this unbeatable ship captain. He is the undisputed master of captain's fancy. He is somebody people gravitate toward. And and uh, without reserve, trust to win. And everything Morn has done through the last book and a half is undercut, 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 undercut. All of this identity. She has exposed his identity as somebody who is, at its basic level, not Nick Sicorso. She's exposed. This is a guy who was somebody different before he met Soros <clears throat> Chatelaine. Mm -hmm. He was somebody different before he was cut. And then at the next level, he's the captain of Captain's Fancy. Well, Captain's Fancy, he's... He's had a mutiny now. Half of his crew doesn't trust him. You know, he, and and then on top of that, as he is punishing her by turning over to the Amnion, she reveals to him, even if your crew doesn't trust you, or if they do, even if they do, even if you expel Mika and Vector and Sib and Pup, even if you, if your whole crew was twenty versions of a uh, 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 Liet, it wouldn't matter because the Amnion have your priority codes. Everything about your your entire identity is gone. It has been torn away. Yeah. She has turned Angus, or not Angus, Nick. Nick. Sorry, wow. <laughs> um, she has turned Nick into that damsel. He is now at the mercy of everybody around him. But in, and in so doing, she's telling him she's not interested in getting revenge upon him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, I mean, Nick knows she's telling the truth immediately. Because it just right. makes so much sense, right? And she didn't have to tell him that. If Nick was in her shoes, he would never in a million years have no. told Morn that the Amnion had the priority codes. No, because to Nick, every bit of information is is power. And, yeah. and it's something that he must reserve for himself to, to preserve this crystalline stasis of... Uh, of being the captain. Mm. And, the, and, and Morn has shattered the crystal. Yeah. This is it, it, Morn at rock bottom. <clears throat> and yes, we, and, and that core fundamental decency 
mm-hmm. is still there and it's so strong. It's strong enough to just knock Nick over on his ass. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't really think there's much more to be said about Morn. Or Nick. Other than that. Or Nick. <laughs> Not yet about Morn. Yeah. Uh, so, so Gene, which character would you like to discuss next? Um, so we're talking book three here? Mm. Yes. First half of A Dark and Hungry God Arises. Davies. Yes, I was hoping you would say Davies. Good choice. Rob, I, I see your face. You're you're excited. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> I'm not really sure to think what to say or think about Davies yet entirely. I'm not sure what my opinion is. I haven't formed it entirely. I don't know if I have enough context yet. I still want to call him Morn, even because that's that's who he is. <laughs> she is. I don't like. I don't know how that works. I like that there's a lot of fertile ground with him strictly as a character. Like he's he's trying to come to terms with the fact that he's he thinks he's someone else. He's complete with most of their memories. He's trying to come to grips with how helpless he is and his lack of anything resembling fault for it. Like in this this. Time tiny naive hope and he knows it's a naive hope upon hearing of his father's arrival it, it makes for some compelling immediate urgency that we're kind of otherwise lacking i think like he's like well, i suppose we get that with Morn too but we're we're a little more detached from her um angus is going to be the one breaking him out we know that and this is going to this is going to happen one of two ways i'm sure it's going to be either incredibly awesome or it's going to be downright horrifying where this goes and i almost <laughs> didn't write this next part Why i almost didn't Sorry, go ahead. Why do you think it couldn't be both? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Never have I heard some more intimidating words when I'm discussing something so sensitive. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat torturing Rob. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. The shadow of the foreshadower. <laughs> yeah. Also, I'm just going to give you... We can, we can cut no, like, I totally agree, Rob, that at this stage of the game, it's really hard to have an opinion about Davies as an individual character and more than just oh he's he's got Morn's mind and is in this pretty incredibly I, awful situation but even I, at this stage of the game there he Donaldson is introducing this this concept very gradually that the combination of Morn and Angus is really something to make you sit up and pay attention to. Yes. Also the circumstances of his gestation, as it mm-hmm. were, mm-hmm. under that sort of endless stimulation. Um I mean that that's the beginnings of his personality as opposed to being different from Morn's. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because it's only one facet of Morn's life. Um but with him it's everything that he's ever known. And of course he's genetically part Angus and that. Mm-hmm. So he's not really uh, mourns. There's a conflict between mourns memories and, and his Angus DNA. And um, that's going to yeah. have to play out. Yeah. So this brings me back to the thematic structure of the series where we have this, you know, tripartite uh, role system of hero, villain, and damsel. And Davies is a hybrid now of in the current 
rotation of the triangle. He is a hybrid of the hero and the damsel. Mm. Right. And, and to me, that is one of the more compelling character premises I've ever encountered. Yeah. Like well, the villain and the damsel. Uh, yeah. And, and, and you know that you already have this structure where things are going to change and you have to keep that in mind reading Davies chapters. Is he going to become a villain character? Is he going to be a hero character? Is he going to be a damsel character? I mean, we early on in this, he is a very explicitly damsel character. He's the, the non point of view Hmm. trapped away in a prison cell deep within the crater while Morn and Nick and Angus are are planning their own you know you know maneuvers and then after you get all of their maneuvers after Morn has been given to the Amnion after Angus and Nick have met in the cantina you get a point of view from Davies meeting with the bill and Soros and inadvertently turning them against each other. Mm-hmm. We have the bill leaving that room angry, confused, unsure of what he needs to do. And we have Soros leaving that chamber with the option to be cruel as we would expect, we we already have the the character basis of her being cruel to Nick Sicorso, carving those scars into his face and torturing him, leaving him by himself, saying, "You are worthless. You you are so far beneath my uh, existence that it's not worth killing you. I'm just going to leave you here to die." And she leaves yeah. Davies, but we already know that Davies is important. And so we know that she has discernment as a character. So mm. Davies becomes not only a hero and damsel hybrid character, but also a character that informs this new ancillary Soros Chatelaine, who is placed as a villain from Nick's point of view, where, you know, she is the villain for Nick's Corso. Mm. And we already know that she's a villain from Morn's point of view because she's the one who killed Morn's mom. But she shows mercy to Davies. She doesn't torture Davies the way the bill tells her to. Um, One, maybe it would be... (laughs) Let's keep this this idea in mind as we continue on that Davies just imagine Davies as the fulcrum upon which the triangle of more Nick and Angus shifts. triangle or I don't I don't know if I could call it a triangle. I'm not willing to say there are only three points on this. Okay, okay, that's fair. This. But <laughs> parallelogram. But fulcrum consider <laughs> Davies as being nonetheless. Right. Yeah, oh. hmm. and it and it and it obviously affects him too. But I don't know. Let's just just keep that 
Just keep that percolating around the old gray cells. <laughs> no, it's it's good. I I think yeah. you're right. Um, it, I mean, Gene, you agree even with before this? he was. I don't want to. I I definitely agree with Davies as Fulcrum, but I don't want to do any spoiler yeah. stuff. Well, yeah, even, okay. before yeah. was, <laughs> even before he was born, he mm. was affecting at his conception. You, you could argue he was yeah, okay. he has been influencing events subtly. Yes, yes, I, I would say he influenced events before his birth, but he only influenced events that uh included Morn and Nick. Right. I mean, okay, maybe I'm talking him up a little much. He he doesn't he can't transcend space and time quite <laughs> yeah. so much to reach out to Angus at that far yeah. removed. But once he was born, his importance in the entire landscape of this series encompasses the Amnion, the Bill, Warden, Holt, I mean, uh, Min Donner. Like, there's so many angles on Davies as this tipping point character. As you said, the fulcrum. And it's interesting how little agency he has. Despite being so, so important. No, oh, for sure. Absolutely. Rob, okay, I want to hear from Rob because you're the one who hasn't read the series. Yes. And, you know, I almost didn't write this next thought of mine down because I don't know if this makes me sound deranged or affected by the story at all and nature of the <laughs> darkness that's happening. <clears throat> but you guys have, have instilled in me that it's, it's going to get pretty, pretty dark. And I don't know if we're at the darkest <laughs> yet, but I'm really nervous about the whole Angus thinks he's in love with Morn thing and Davies Highland mm. for all intents and purposes being Morn Highland just before, you know, the uh, the wreck of the, oh God, the, uh, what was it called? Star Catchers? The, her Star ship. Master. Star Master. Star Master, thank you. Yeah. So this is the horrifying part I referred to earlier. I, I said it's going to happen one of two ways. Um, I'm hoping that Angus starts to get some sort of redemption arc and he comes to fight for his son and he starts to turn a new leaf. But in a story where you have individuals like Holt Fastner and Nick Corso and Angus Thermopylae himself and Milo's Taverner, like the and the entire population of Billingate, apparently, like <laughs> I don't have much <laughs> hope for the good side of things at the moment, and I'm scared. That's all I'm no, say. I get you. I, that means that Donaldson is doing his job. Yes. Yeah. This is an author who is not afraid, like George R. R. Martin, especially in the the first three books of A Song of Ice and Fire. Stephen R. Donaldson is very willing to allow the consequences of his character's actions to progress to their natural endpoints. Mm-hmm. That, that was well put. Yeah. yeah, like if you do something, expect it to have consequences. There's I mean, reaping and there's sowing involved? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, like there are so many... A classic fantasy science fiction series where the heroes get plot armor. They do things that should have certain consequences and they only get 
some of those consequences. And, and if there's something that would be fatal to them or, or, and I say fatal as like, a not just like, oh, you're going to die, but like fatal to your goals, mm-hmm. they get deflected because they're the main characters. Stephen R. Donaldson is not interested in that. George R. R. Martin is not interested in that. Uh, go back to Glenn Cook. He was not interested in that. He was interested in telling stories about people who make decisions based on high pressure situations and they have to deal with the consequences. Mm. Mm. The gap into consequences, Ugh. dealing with it. I want to get into a meme. Well, uh, what, what is, uh, I mean, go ahead. what is the, uh, what is the name of the next book? Hmm? Uh, should we? The should gap we in order. The gap into madness, chaos, and order. <laughs> well, with that cryptic image in mind, let us hasten <laughs> back to characters. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, have we moved on to Angus yet? Because we were kind of dealing with Angus and Davies at the same time. We, we probably should. That's yeah, yeah, we should. Right? We should. Yeah, I'm just. I, I I just feel really bad for the guy, and I don't know if I'm capable, or I should say, if I'm just incapable of maintaining a grudge because he, you know, he really deserves it. But just seeing what Milos is putting him through, it's kind of hard to feel anything except pity. I'm really hoping out or holding out hope that he gets a redemption arc and I want it not because I think he deserves a redemption arc or maybe he doesn't necessarily depending on how you look at it, but because managing to turn around a guy like Angus Thermopylae and make him redeemable in itself would be such an impossible sounding task coming out of the real story that I kind of want my expectations to just be blasted into smithereens. I think it would be like the ultimate baller move on Donaldson's part. So I have hope. As a as a, a general theme, you can't, by definition, deserve redemption. Yes, I was going to say until, until you have <laughs> until you have earned the redemption, you are not worthy of redemption. Right, so right. you need to be redeemed. I should and say deserve worthy the, the hope of redemption or something. Because uh, yeah, yeah, I should have specified. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I feel you, and I was. I think everyone starts to feel this way, and then you have like this weird guilt about wanting uh, uh, the redemption to take yeah. place. I mean, I'm rooting because, for Angus Thermopylae. It's a horrible oh, person. It's like, yeah. but, then, but then you really have to stop and think, like, okay, so do I only want decent people to be to have redemption? Do I not want bad people to have it as well, or at least have the option? Like, really, yes. it, it's, it gets really deep the more you think about it. Yeah. This is one of the reasons I have this series on a level with the Acts of Cain is that it forces you to consider a moral dynamicism where you can have a, a, a person who is a, a, an objectively terrible person and is trying to become better. And now you can, uh, based on your own philosophical outlook or, or, or moral standards, you can make your judgments on characters in 
the acts of Cain by Matthew Stover versus characters in uh, the gap cycle, but they both series do the same things. They make you, they make you hate characters. And I'm just like, like this isn't just main characters, right? This isn't just, Oh, you know, the acts of Cain and uh, Angus Thermopylae. It's not just Cain and, and Angus. There are multiple characters throughout the series where you have to, really grapple with what certain people do and how they change and whether or not you agree with their changes or why they change. Because hmm. uh, it's very easy for certain characters to do the right things for the wrong reasons or do the wrong things for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something especially Donaldson is very concerned with <laughs> in my opinion at least uh, there are characters who do heroic things for horrible reasons you know and and there are people who do terrible things yeah for good reasons well one of the things that Angus reflects on this sometimes about you know when people look at his previous escapades, they might see something that looks like courage. Right. But really, Angus knows that it's not, that it's all extremity and cowardice. Yes. It's it's him reacting to pain and hatred and 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 trying to do things that hurt other people as a reaction to the hurt he has experienced, but in in an ancillary way turn out good results you know like things that he wasn't even intending like his his intention is to hurt somebody and then something happens as a result of his infliction of pain that is a a moral good and it's like was was this a good action he he never even saw the option for this, and yet, <laughs> and yet, and yet, um, Dad, anything to add about Angus? No, just what I said before is that he's now, um, without his even choosing it, he's now done something noble, mm-hmm. right. And that will have has to have implications and consequences. Well, um, is it noble though? If he doesn't no. really have a choice, no, no. But it still has implications and consequences for him because yeah. he's done it. And so, but it's the first step. It's like vicarious nobility, like Ooh, vicarious nobility. I like it. Like from Warden Dios through <laughs> Angus in yes, uh, and there is more. Have an yeah, annual so year, yes. It's it's probably not noble. I mean, this is where, to me, the idea of grimdark uh, fantasy, science fiction, whatever, grimdark fiction, grimdark stories comes through, is that we get to see Angus perform actions that, for Angus, are not good. They do not have moral 
reasoning behind them. They're on every level evil. But he is being manipulated by somebody who has, at least as far as we know, good intentions. Or, I mean, like we think, probably good intentions. Mm Mm-hmm. But he's making evil things happen and he's forcing another person to carry out their own evil inclinations. It's like, even if the the end result is good, do all of these evil steps to like present that good result, like, do they justify it? Mm. Like... It's so that's that's what grimdark is for me. It's it's really bringing in the complexity of morality yeah. where where you have characters you, you may have a character trying to change himself or trying to uh at, at least bring himself to a moral equilibrium but being manipulated by somebody else who is very much all about the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm wrong. I said it was the first step. It's actually the second step because Angus <laughs> actually has done one good thing of his own volition, and that is he kept the deal. With Morn. Yep. He made the deal with Morn and he kept it. Yep. So this would be another step, a very important step. Yes. Um, but- Snipe. Right. The sheer depth of morality in this series is ridiculous. How how many books have you read where where you can try to judge the morality of a decision on like four or five different levels? Where where (laughs) somebody makes a decision here. And that informs a decision here, and that informs a decision here, and then that informs the final decision, and then here's the result. And, and where, it's like, all right, who's right and who's wrong? And yeah, and where is the morality <laughs> lost in translation? Is it lost in translation? Does it make it through? <laughs> yeah. Well, another. this is like another natural segue, but speaking of ends justify the means, to, brings us to Warden Dios, and yeah, I would say for him... And I think is for all of us, for all of the human race, to an extent, there is no perfect answer. That is not a path that is available to us. Now, we can have good motivations, as we're pretty sure at this point in the story that Warden Dios does, but he doesn't have any good means available to him or no good means that would actually make a difference. Right. And I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb. I do not believe that Stephen R. Donaldson is a Catholic, hmm. but I think this story is a fundamentally Catholic story in that uh, it engages with the human existence as broken. Yeah. Well, that and that's yet certainly, certainly true. and yet it is. It, like if you dig down to the thematic foundation of the gap cycle, it is broken people 
trying to ascend, trying to live up to the level of godhood. Mm. And, and because humans are broken, sorry, I'm getting like really, 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 really into, into the, the Marianas trench of uh, depth here. Uh, and, and because I don't want to spoil too much, I'm just going to say there's a reason the final book is called this day. All gods die. <laughs> Okay. Uh, foreshadowing penalty, ten <laughs> yards. No, no. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I I really got ahead of myself. I I can't I can't resist going into thematic stuff. But I'm excited. I just it it just makes me more excited, Drew. Keep going. Oh my goodness. And, um, and, okay, before you go on, Rob, I just want to say this series is to me the ultimate consummation of what you like in science fiction and fantasy and what I like in science fiction and fantasy. And it marries them. Okay, okay. It is it is the action and the intensity and the the plot insanity. And the literary elements, the thematic elements, the beautiful structure and and ultimate interweaving. And I have always been waiting because I've I have heard you say so many times how you hate politics. I'll say it again. Hey, I hate politics. Yeah, but you love this, don't you? Depends. The uh, the ancillary documents, not particularly. Warden no, Dios, I'm on board. I'm yeah. on board. Yeah. And yep. what is Warden Dios doing? He's doing everything. What are you talking about? He's he's being a badass, I hope. He is engaging in politics. Oh yeah. And I was it's not what I was expecting. Like I was expecting to see a little more action out of him, but I, I can see now with his position, that's not just really something that's practical. Oh, oh, oh but, so. but again, I mean, you said you wanted action. How did Warren, uh, Warden Dios's politics end in this part of the book? It ended with a boom. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, this is more, oh, yeah, this is Min Donner, but this is, this is like so, something that she's cooked up yeah. with. I mean, it's I a little told... bit like saying if someone finds baseball, for example, boring, it's like saying, well, if you put landmines in it, then it's not boring <laughs> anymore. Well, it's, well, no. it's not really fair to baseball or landmines. What I really want to like point out here is that politics, uh, political stories in and of it, uh, like in and of itself as a, a genre is not something that Rob Santos is automatically <laughs> going to hate. It's how you present it. Mm. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Like, we've so, talked so, about it, it, the gap cycle from the first book through the first half of the third book. We're, we're nearly halfway through. It's insanity. It's a roller coaster. It never yeah. stops. It's like mixing Robitussin in with your pina colada. That's what it is. It goes down easier. I like it. <laughs> if you Boy, need to take it, wow. if you need to take did, the Robitussin, 
you can. How did you know what my final draft choice was, Rob? (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) (laughs) that would just be wonderful. No, like, okay, he's he's a really complex guy, Warden Dios. I love how he chooses to treat those around him based on the amount of respect he has for each, but it's the opposite of how you would assume. Like, he's incredibly polite to those he dislikes, and he's rude and acerbic to those he trusts. It's a fascinating combination from a guy who's, you know, he's as physically intimidating and apparent as, as apparently physically intimidating as he is. The guy's clever. He obviously wouldn't have risen to the rank of d- director of the UMCP. That's his title, yeah? Yes. Yeah. It, you know, he wouldn't get there if he wasn't ambitious and intelligent. But the guy is so good at what he does. I love this little point here. And this is what you're talking about, Drew, where, where even I get on board with the politics. The hidden message to Holt Fastener that he delivers through a clueless godson, you know, leave Min and Hashi out of this. <laughs> if you want to punish someone, concentrate on me. I'm big enough for my own mistakes or whatever it was. Genius. Badass. That's, that's good stuff. I wasn't expecting that kind of badass out of Warden Dios. It was, it was cool. Buckle up, man. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm excited. Cool. You guys are stoking me up here. Um. So some of the – should we touch on some of the more minor characters now? I don't have a lot of time, guys, so why don't we uh... – Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, do we have any – like... throw me out. <laughs> no, no. Let's uh, let's uh, wrap it up on, on character points. Do we have any important things? Um, I, I have an interesting miscellaneous point. Hit me. Um, well, it's, it's, it's a funny, funny little thing. Uh, Billingsgate is a dock in the city of London that has existed for several hundred years um, and is chiefly remembered for the incredibly foul language of the dock workers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I, I'm quite convinced they're related. So there's a little bit of miscellaneous fun facts. Uh, yeah, I would definitely believe that. Uh, the, uh, Donaldson was always willing to uh, bring in real-world influences to yeah. his science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, any uh, miscellaneous points, Dad? Uh, not on that book. No, I'm, I am interested though in the in the Billingate thing because it's, you know, ports, important ports are always the most decadent, degenerate places in the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Thanatos Mine is a cool place for a story. If you're into that sort of thing, I've just been the books I've been reading for the podcast. And the game, the video games I've been playing as well. I'm myself, Rob Santos. I'm a little saturated now with my tolerance for like the big, dirty, overcrowded, lawless, sovereign state sort of setting. Like everything going on here just makes me think cyberpunk, you know. And I realize that this book predates yes. that in the whole genre. Um, I, I'm just glazing over a lot of the description at this point. That's all. It's like, yeah, okay, I get it. People yeah. have futuristic cybernetic enhancements, but it's all dystopian anyway, not utopian. And it's overcrowded and dirty, and the social structure is primitive. Yeah, I've seen this a thousand times. So, and and that's unfortunate because you know this was a story that predated right a exactly. lot of your, yep. you know, and yeah. it, one of the things, uh, one of the lines I had highlighted that I thought was just a, you know, a a, a telling sentence when. Milos and Angus get into their their room on Billingate. And there's a line that says, 
the bed probably knew almost as much about desperation oh. and hate as he did. Oh. Yeah. That just tells you that I don't want to sleep on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, it, it, it tells you so much about the character and the setting in, you know, what, one, two, three, four, like, f- 13, 14 words. Like, it's it's yep. great yeah. writing. You know, it it, that's it's doing double work. But yeah, um, I, I agree, Rob. It's, it's kind of like uh, criticizing Tolkien for all the Tolkien knockoffs. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's like, that's not fair. Yeah, not I've fair. seen this on board of it, but it's not the fault of the subject material. I mean, I recognize that this was quite, you know, quite different for its time. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't that long ago. Uh, we've already discussed my second of three of miscellaneous points, and that was when I just asked about the omniscient narrator, you know, in Chapter 5 with Davies. But okay, uh, my last one. I just want to say I love this, this one-liner that Nick has. He did make me laugh at one point when Mark Vestibule walked in. Nick sees him and goes, let me guess, you want to sit. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to like that. I was good. And also calling him an oxidized lump of amnion shit. That was pretty funny, too. Yeah, but yeah. Especially the first one. So I, I had another miscellaneous point. It up. Uh, and, and this is, is something that uh, a specific word that Donaldson has used a lot, both in the last half of Forbidden Knowledge and early in... A dark and hungry god arises, and that is the word autism. Mm. Now, this is a word that in 2021 comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, it's you know we we have the autism spectrum now. We have a much greater understanding of the neurodivergence of what being autistic is in the modern sense of the word autistic. However, the way Donaldson uses autism or autistic is fundamentally different. And he was using the original definition of autism. And that is basically uh, the the withdrawal inside mm. oneself. It is, it, it, you know, it's, it's excluding the world around you, focusing inward. So ought like a U T is self, right? You, you know, you think of like an, uh, uh, you go back to your root, words ought or you know yeah that's self and then you think of like arc right like monarch or plutarch or whatever that's rule and autark is self-rule and that's where autism came from it was self-rule and so Whenever we have a situation where Davies reverts to autism or or Morin reverts to autism, it's not some sort of, uh, you know... Um, He's not using it in a technical sense, is what you're saying. 
Well, no, he's using he is using it in a technical sense, but he's not using it in a uh, um, a, a, a disregarding sense toward mm. people who are clinically diagnosed as autistic. He is using it as a descriptor for somebody who has become so traumatized, they have become withdrawn. They have become self-focused, uh, where they literally cannot engage with the outside world because they are so horribly damaged. And we get that uh, early on uh, with Davies. You know, we have... He was a prisoner, a pawn in a conflict over which he had no control, a conflict which he could scarcely comprehend because of the black hole in his head where crucial memories should have been. As far as he knew, no one wanted him alive except his mother, whose plight was probably even worse than his, and the Amnion, who intended to make him one of them. Beyond question, he should have collapsed into raving or withdrawn into autism. So it's easy to read a line like that now in 2021 and be like, oh, what the f Donaldson? Like, what are you doing? Like, oh, like this is some bullshit. Like, oh, you're going to be an autistic person because like, no, the, the meaning of that word is fundamentally different. Mm. He should have used catatonic. Yes, yeah, and 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 that's something that uh, aligns with me, where uh, you know I'm I'm a big Star Wars fan, and the Star Wars X-wing books written by Michael A. Stackpole, Aaron Alston, uh, there is a character in the Stackpole books who encounters a situation similar to Davies. And it's described uh, uh, as he withdrew into catatonia. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting distinction. I hadn't I hadn't realized that. You, you know, I think back to uh, when Gene brought it up on the first Forbidden Knowledge episode about how the word "livid" has shifted meaning. Where when Dante was writing in the Divine Comedy, that word meant a deep blue. And now it means a like a dark red. Yeah. You know, and so uh, there is, uh, as, as language does, it changes. Mm. And so it's easy to read a book like this that was written in the 80s, 90s a series like this and you read it in 2021 and be like, wow, that word is really insensitive. That's, that's garbage. Revolution. This, what yeah, like th this guy is a, is a terrible person because he's really insensitive about how he's using words, but he was using words fundamentally differently mm -hmm. than how we would use them now. And I think that's important to point out. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, cool. I'm about ready to go into final draft, if you gentlemen are. Yeah.
I'm in. All right. The final yeah, yeah, yeah. I should say. Should I start then, since I have the uh, the sober choice? Okay. So I'm drinking a uh, a flavored water today, a sh- a zero sugar, electrolyte filled, flavored oh. water called Propel. It's kiwi strawberry flavored. I was feeling pretty weak today. You know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm almost three months in the keto diet. I'm I was lethargic for the past couple of days. Electrolytes, man, that's all it takes. I could not believe how much of a transformation over my whole body came over when I had half of a bottle of this Propel. It is, and I'm just realizing now it says it's from the makers of Gatorade. But hey, yeah, electrolyte yeah. filled, zero sugar water. That's all I need to, to sit down and discuss some Donaldson. I'm actually kind of glad I haven't been drinking anything alcoholic because with a bit of a queasy stomach, this would not have been an easy episode to get, yeah. get through. Um, yeah. Do they sell that to men? <laughs> Dude, Pat, you asked me that right as I took a sip. I almost took all over this entire screen in front of me right there. Oh my goodness! I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't mean anything. This by was it. bought by my mother, actually. So I don't know. It might not. No, no. Oh. Propel is is a legit. Uh, and oh, that's an athlete you. drink. Um, I, I've I've had a lot of Propel in really? my day. I've never seen yeah, it from like the store. No, it's it it's a weird. it's an athlete recovery drink. Uh, it's like you go out and awesome. you you destroy your body for an hour playing a football game or right. a, you know, a hockey game or something, and then you drink a, a, it, a lot of that. It's just so convenient <laughs> because in my chemistry course that I'm doing right now online, I'm just happening. I literally, like three hours ago, was writing down the properties of electrolytes. Like I was learning. <laughs> so it just kind of fits thematically as well. I had some of this and I turned into a different man. And now I'm, I'm nice. pumped and I'm full of energy. So... Thank you for the discussion, gentlemen. Who's next? I'm drinking iced tea with lemon, cold brew. <laughs> I drink by the gallon. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I wish I could have uh, that iced tea by the gallon. I have I have drunk that particular recipe, and it is delicious. It's a staple of our home. Yeah. Mm, a recipe. I'm the only one who drinks it. <laughs> Well, oh, well, that's we, a crime right there. More people should drink that. That that ice. Well, I've always so had good. the impression that you'd be cross with us if we drank your ice. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you needed to use the word cross as well. I love it. Um, I uh, have been enjoying uh, easy streets and sipping pretties. Uh, in what? in more or less like, uh, you know, back and forth manner, pretty much all afternoon. Nice. Um, and I've been really enjoying that. Um, and the the irony of easy street and sipping pretty when we're <laughs> reading a story where no one is on an easy street and no nothing is sipping pretty for anybody is just yeah, delightful. And, and and both of those beers are from Odell Brewing Company uh, in Fort Collins. Yeah, they're uh, man, uh, uh, Pat. Were like you drinking street. the easy street with a lemon? By any chance? Uh, I was not. Ooh, no. uh, I would recommend it. That's okay. a a delightful combination. Fair enough. I'm still laughing about Pat's comment. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> also, also the 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 oscillating fan in the fecal matter references <laughs> in the analogy there is still crack. What's been cracking me up all episode? All right, I I have to take credit for that. There is an old school beam, Joseph DeCrow. 
where you uh, you take a common saying and you put it into elevated language. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a, there's, I, a, there's a term for it though. I didn't know that. Joseph de Crow is the meme. It's like the like okay. old school 1700s yeah, yeah, guy yeah, who's got a this. crooked smile pointing. Disregard yeah. females. Acquire currency. Exactly. We used to do it with yeah. rock and roll songs when we were teenagers. Oh, <laughs> wonderful! Yeah, very uh, nice. Very nice. I made. The Joseph DeCrow meme back in in the late 2000s and the late aughts where uh, I, I turned <laughs> nice. is going to hit the fan into uh, fecal matter will imminently impact the oscillating turbine device. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yes, and here we are. <laughs> And here we are in 2021. Yep. yep, and Pat's analogy with the baseball and the landmines earlier. I couldn't get enough of that either. He's been on fire with those today. <laughs> it's the alcohol. Nice, nice. I got to sip on some of that. All right, Drew. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I am drinking a double India pale ale Ooh. from our old friends, Anchorage Brewing Company. It is 8.4%. As... Uh, as you would expect from a, a current India Pale Ale, it's it's a, a pretty thick, strong, uh, bitter beer, but has a nice leavening of like a kind of a pineapple mango hop presence. Very, very tasty. Happy to drink 16 ounces of it. However, the most important thing, this beer is called... Revenge. Oh, nice. I'm not nice. right now. I'm that Antonio Banderas meme when he, he leans back in a chair and he bites his knuckles. Going, oh, it's nice. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, can't uh, can't leave that one out when we're covering the gap cycle. Ooh. Absolutely a, not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could do that beer on basically any episode for this entire series and it would fit <laughs> yeah okay fair. <laughs> but uh back in the middle but yeah i i believe this is episode 121 121 of the inking out loud podcast next up we will be covering the second half of <laughs> a dark and hungry god arises yeah. so check in for that if we'd like to support the show we are at patreon.com slash inking out loud. Uh, you can get all kinds of bonuses and, and extra content, original fiction by Robert, myself, early access to episodes. You know, it's, it's uh, worth your while to look into that. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. And our special guest, Pat McCaffrey, our sound see, engineer. See you guys next time. Yeah. And our other special guest, Gene McCaffrey. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We we like having Gene's perspective on these episodes since he read these books way before any of us. Uh, <laughs> uh, he is the elder statesman of thinking out loud and brings a completely different perspective. He always lets us know where we're going wrong. <laughs> the old man. 
That's what the old man's oh, for. A, yeah. Hey, <laughs> right, and, and and not only that, but the punk. You have the punk perspective. Uh, I don't know if any of our listeners know this, but Gene is an accomplished musician. And uh, I mean, I'm not a musician, but I am a fan of rock and roll. And uh, and and Gene knows what's up with that. Oh my goodness! We're going to have to concur. We're going to have to jam when I Rob. We'll send you. We'll send you some stuff, Rob. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I'm on YouTube. Okay. Yes. You like the Descendants, Rob? You like the Descendants? I don't know who the Descendants are. Oh, okay. Because their drummer, their drummer plays with me. No kidding. Yeah. I'm gonna have to look into this. I know exactly what I'm doing. We're signing off. Uh, All right. Yeah. 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 Nobody knows New York music like Gene. <laughs> oh, New York City rock and roll. That's right. Yeah. Represent. Yes. Yeah. Good. So we're gonna, so we're gonna we... make the outro music like your song. Oh, this episode. I like it. <laughs> okay. That is gonna happen. That is gonna happen, and Kick I it. promise it. Uh, so, on that note, pun intended. Oh my god! Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.